And it's about 30 seconds away from 4 o'clock. Jan Bartlett with Tuesday Home Time, and I'll be here as usual until 6 o'clock. Today, anti-war activist Kieran O'Reilly on the continuing detention of Julian Assange in Britain. Toxic Free Faulkner, it's got a new name, with Sue Bolton, who's the local councillor in that part of Melbourne. Part two of the interview with Bishop Hilton Deacon, this time looking at his involvement with the struggle for independence for East Timor. Gardasil, Fast Track and Flawed is the name of a book by Helen Lobato. The Amazon Under Threat with Dr Ralph Newmark, the director of the Latin American Institute at La Trobe University. But first, it's him, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Listener, when as the world's leading environmental protector, and it's not just us saying that, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump, or the poor, told us that himself in his own modest way. Not only is the US of the world's leading protector of the environment, but Donald himself wants the US of to have nothing less than clean air and clean water. So as Donald's modesty lets that slip, the mind boggles at what he'd do if he didn't care about the environment. But there was light at the end of the tunnel over his sensible decision that the US of economy is far more important than the end of the world. Because if those great entrepreneurs whose sole ambition is to lift the world's poor out of poverty by providing them with the only viable solution, good clean coal, were prevented by these long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden-working and iron lot from saving the world, it would be the end of the world anyway. Light at, for despite our big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull and Minister for Fossils Josh Frydem Icebergs assuring us True Blue Aussie would push on in our attempt to wreck the True Blue Aussie economy, a more progressive and aware caring business class party poly Craig killing the planet was popping champagne corks and celebrating Donald's sensible and rational defence of the almighty dollar. And that's the good news for Craig Kelly, the planet, is chair of the Parliamentary Environment and Energy Committee. Doesn't that fill us with hope? I've got a firm grasp of the energy bit, Craig boasted. Hope too, as Donald elaborated on his concerns for the environment. An environment in which you can count the higher profits every night. Good. Very, very good and how proud he will feel when, thanks to his saving the US of economy, those coal miners can keep digging it out even as the dystopia spreads and the ocean rises around them because at least they'll have jobs, jobs, jobs. As the coal mine great corporate boardrooms in suits will have taken refuge on high ground somewhere safe. Well, temporarily safe. Or they could join Donald sunbathing on the sand at the White House beach. As Donald explains, what a pity it was the economy couldn't afford to uphold his great campaign for clean air and clean water. If we believe pessimistically there is no light at the end of, that not only that, but there is a train coming the other way, then we will be shattered by Malcolm's assurance, when we commit to an international agreement, we follow through. In other words, threatening our economy. 
Although a positive is that the government's non-policies plan to address that commitment will pose no threat to the fossils. Because as, uh, as they say, we must address that world's leading environmentalist Donald's hoax of climate change, a Chinese conspiracy, tiny a bit more for the boss's load of crap, without damaging the polluters' profits. So perhaps we should give Donald some marks for at least be honest about it. Uh, always following through, Malcolm, under the Refugees Convention, we are committed to, hadn't realised it commits us to, locking them up for life in a concentration camp or giving them the option of going back to or just sending them back to what and where they're fleeing. I can assure you our compassionate treatment of no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people complies with our international commitments. Indeed, we have a learned Silk's legal opinion guaranteeing we are meeting our commitments. Now, that learned Silk, not Attorney General George Brandy's brain. Indeed, from no less a great legal mind as George. You must be disgusted at the treatment of these people we put to the Socialist Party would-be Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Richard Mulls, the refugees. Disgusted. A Socialist Party government would oversee the concentration camps with real compassion. Hard as it is to believe, there are still people who reckon it's difficult to tell the difference between them. And on a positive note, the terrorist refugees threatening our way of life could soon be out of their misery anyway, thanks to Donald's big announcement as their island concentration camps sink into the briny. Some people, and this is true, said it was encouraging to hear Donald's fry the planet sort of speech because it shows he keeps his promises. Well, yeah. And as we breathlessly await, breathless thanks to the sort of clean air to which Donald so aspires, await this Finkel report commissioned to delay the inevitable, telling us what we need to do to slow down the end of the world without hurting the fossil economy, because obviously a non-fossil economy is not a real economy. That economic bible, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, has summed it up P1 headlines yesterday and today. Business warms to climate plan and ALP warms to ton of bull energy plan respectively. The emphasis, the constant, obviously warms. On those terrorists, as maniacs around the world continue to slaughter the innocent in the name of their respective gods and messiahs, we are saturated with all-day telecoverage or page after page after page of the slaughters in white civilised societies, while the daily slaughter in those countries we have invaded warrants a two-par story at the bottom of the world page or no coverage at all. Except when a troop of Aussie girl is killed in Afghanistan by a massive bomb that caused massive murder and injury. A little Islamic angel among a religion of terrorists. Mass coverage. Yet, what were the names of the other 80 or so people murdered? Who were they? What was their life all about? Who will miss them? The wedding parties the US of and Trouble was the and the coalition of the killing kill, murder, slaughter. Got a feeling there might be page after page all day telly coverage if a maniac blew up a wedding party here in Trublewazi or in the US of. Details of the angels, innocent, slaughtered, jihad, 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 faces of evil of the killers. Details of what the couple planned for their honeymoon, their life together, the poor guests also slaughtered. But the wedding parties we demolish? 
not one name, just an item, a bit of collateral damage. No details of their hopes and aspirations. Perhaps just the relief that we prevented terrorists giving birth to other terrorists. Indeed, with daily drone attacks orchestrated from a war room in Washington, no coverage at all. It's no longer news, because slaughter in the name of our God is not slaughter. It's our desire for and our love of peace. Back to the capitalist review, as we reported, also announced the premiership ladder in the filthiest rich of the filthy rich a couple of weeks ago. Well, one of the filthiest rich of the filthy rich, former witch bank, which used to be our bank's supremo David Morey for me, who subsequently conducted a totally unbiased financial system inquiry for the government, hopefully, well, I think we can confidently conclude, lucratively rewarded for same, described the bank levy that has those who know about these things in a state of apoplexy as a hate tax, which is understandable, given we know just how much they do hate tax. David and other prominent exponents of the greatest little economic order of them all ordered big economic guru scuttled them more lash son sorry, sorry, advised to tone down his rhetoric about the banks. One investment banker saging, it's not helpful to attack any industry, let alone one that is critical to a proper functioning economy. Uh, proper functioning? A proper functioning bank economy. One of Scuttlebem's outrageous comments upsetting them described the banks as an oligopoly attacking everyday true blue Aussies. That's outrageous, the poor dears chorused. You can't single them out. They're just one part of the oligopoly. But we can take heart knowing Scuttlebem so cares about everyday true blue Aussies, which presumably means those who live here every day, as opposed to those who passed away yesterday and didn't make it to today. And or Scuttlebem believes in vampires, which the filthiest of the filthy rich may believe in, as they continually tell us the tax office is a voracious vampire. One economist argued last week it was important to protect the smaller banks in order to maintain the competition policy on the great level field of world's best practice, which works such a treat for all of us. So these banks, he said, were too small to fail. So with the big ones being too big to fail, the banks successfully have a firm grip on the public purse coming and going. Finally, the brilliant show us why they deserve huge salaries by deep philosophical comments we would never think of without them. Like the head of the Dole Bludgers and Selfish Pensioners Department over claims that 42 million calls went unanswered. If someone rings 20 times, but if the first call was answered, the other 19 calls wouldn't happen, she said. Well, no. Doesn't that deserve every cent of her huge salary? Good afternoon. And thanks to Mr Kevin Healy, and they're the sort of people that you will donate for on the program next week to keep people like Kevin Healy on this program and also on his own program, City Limits, on... Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock and also about 20 past 8 on Saturday morning. He does another version of The Week That Was. Of course, it's not as good as this one, but I'm a bit biased. So if you want to keep on hearing voices like Kevin, next week is your time to donate to 3CR and we hope that as many of our listeners as possible will be ringing up on the program next week.
Two weeks ago on the program, Kieran O'Reilly, anti-war activist, spoke about Chelsea Manning's release from prison. What I didn't have time to play was his views on Julian Assange's imprisonment in Britain. Turning to Julian Assange, he's in a sense is locked up as well. The Swedish prosecutors have dropped their rape investigations without charging him with a crime. Yeah. I mean, that's the second time they've dropped it. The first time is when he reported to a police station in Sweden and the senior prosecutor in Stockholm said, there is no absence of consent, there is no crime here, and uh, you're free to leave, you know. And then it's picked up again. And basically a fit-up, you know, that... um, It's basically a holding action. And initially they had him in jail. They had him in Wandsworth, offline. That's where they wanted him, offline. And then he got bail. And then... um, they didn't even have a magistrate sign the European arrest warrant. They had a cop. Now the law has changed in Britain after the Assange case that you need a magistrate to sign a European arrest warrant. A cop is not sufficient. But that doesn't help him because he, his case is before that change in law. Obviously, they've decided, uh, you know, they've served the Obama administration well. The best thing for the Swedes would be to retra- extract themselves because now the US grand jury probably have an indictment and will probably have a direct request, extradition request to Britain. The, the Swedish holding action is, is not relevant anymore. And uh, they, and I think the prosecutor who was pushing it, she's about to retire. I'm sure she'll be rewarded in due course. The Brits are still waiting to arrest him and um, the Yanks are still waiting to put him in jail for us. We need to kick up here in Australia. I think anything British or American coming to your city, whether it's a rock star, whether it's a football team, whether it's a politician... It should be confronted with the Assange case. And I think Turnbull and whoever's foreign affairs minister should be confronted. What are they doing about the civil liberties of an Australian citizen who has not been charged, who's been detained indefinitely? And um, they're doing nothing because they're total sycophants. It's good to see Christine Assange speaking out about that yesterday. You can imagine what would happen to him if the Americans got hold of him, though, couldn't you? They're keen to bury him. I mean, the CIA have come out and declared that publicly. And Julian is, you know, he's very courageous and he just keeps, he believes in his work and he just keeps working away. And, um, you know, he really believes the truth will set us free. I hope, I hope he's right because there's a whole lot of people who, who want to curtail his freedom. They've done such a propaganda campaign, especially the Guardian newspapers, at slandering him. Now, I was talking to a former senator here in Queensland the other day and I said, why isn't there any support? And he said, he's got a difficult personality. And I'm going, how the fuck would you know that? Have you ever met him? Like, it's just a very, cow- you know, cynicism is always cowardly. You know, I was, I was with Julian about two months ago in the embassy. And, and whenever I'm there and I have to leave, it's a real sadness. It feels like you're on a prison visit and, and you're, you're leaving and the, this person is detained. And it looks like he's going to be detained for the rest of his life, you know, something unless. Corbyn gets elected or something miraculous like that. <laughs> How would you describe the conditions where he's living? Well, in some ways it's better than jail, in some ways it's worse than jail. Like I've spent two years in jail. I've, spent, I've been in about 18 jails or uh, holding facilities. And, uh, you know, there you usually get exercise and you get fresh air. He's very nearly transparent, incredibly pale. Obviously he can get visited by people and he can continue to work. I think it's his work that keeps him going. But I would think it's affecting his eyesight and, uh, and all sorts of health complications. The most chaotic part of a prison, in my experience, is remand, when people don't know what their sentence is, when their outdate is, what they're dealing with. 
and Julian's in that situation. He's, got, he's indefinitely detained. The only place he looks like going is to a smaller room with no windows. So, he's done very well to keep his mental health together and to stay as strong as he does. What sort of access does he have to technology? I would have thought they would have cut all that well, off by now. Well, they did cut it off uh, without warning leading up to the US elections. The Ecuadorian government uh, did that. They didn't restore it. The president who gave him asylum didn't run this time. The guy from his party who was elected said something like, Julian's welcome to stay, but he'll have to stop criticising the United States. And Julian said, well, we'll talk about that. And the, the president-elect said, yes, we'll talk about that. So that's a bit unresolved. I imagine he's, he's able to continue his work. And there's a lot of security issues around the place. So that the street he is on next to Harrods contains some of the most wealthiest people in the world, like a lot of Saudi princes, a lot of Russian oligarchs, and a lot of ex-British SAS doing security uh, work, you know. So it's full of spooks. The place is heavily surveilled, you know. They spent £11 million on just having visible cops around it for three years. That's what we can see. So um, God knows what's happening on that street that we can't see. You know. I asked you before the importance of what um, Chelsea did what would you say is the importance of what Julian continues to do? I'm from Queensland, and I'm just actually going into the end of the McCulkin trial here, and um, we, we grew up knowing the relationship with corruption and the lack of transparency. You know, what we have... I've just been informed that I'm, I've been uh, hacked by the British Special Branch through Indian Secret Police for the last 10 years, whatever. So, you know, I guess the, the principle is WikiLeaks, there should be privacy for the individual, which apparently I haven't got because the British Special Branch have been dancing around my email for how many years. So privacy for the individual and transparency for the government. And we have the reverse. You know, there's no privacy for the individual online and there's very little transparency. And I think what WikiLeaks is, it does is provide us transparency. It tells us how the world works. And once you begin looking at how the world works, it's, it's quite scary and frightening and overwhelming. And most people, a lot of people choose not to want to know how the world works and live in some kind of Disney fantasy. So, you know, I know with Ben Griffin, who, who was in, deployed to Baghdad and doing terrible things, that it gives people like him, you know, whistleblowers and veterans, the actual hard uh, evidence uh, that backs up the stories of what they were doing, you know. And I, I remember him making comments to that effect. It's very objective. It's right from the horse's mouth. And even though they've silenced Julian in one sense, there are plenty of other people carrying on the work as, as he is as well. Oh, for sure, yeah. I mean, the most significant thing is, is the whistleblowers, you know, they're not, not you know, anonymous whistleblowers. And uh, unfortunately, Chelsea got into a chat room with an FBI informant and otherwise probably Chelsea would have remained anonymous and out of jail. So, you know, it's very high-risk stuff and you have to be very, very cautious. OK, thanks, Kieran. as long as you stay out of jail. Thank yeah. <laughs> and that's uh, anti-war activist Kieran O'Reilly, who's spent, as he said, a couple of years in jail at different times and been in Ireland, been in America, been in Britain in Australia and is back in Brisbane. I'm not quite sure for how long, but that is Kieran O'Reilly. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, 
but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. Are you concerned about the growing threat of nuclear weapons? Join the Women's March to Ban the Bomb on the 17th of June in cities across Australia. It's women-led but inclusive of all. Go to womenbanthebomb.org for details. Voice your support for the UN negotiations now underway on a treaty to outlaw nuclear weapons and protest against Australia's shameful boycott of these historic talks. 17th of June, womenbanthebomb.org. The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons Australia is a 3CR supporter. Next, the second and final part of the interview with Melbourne Catholic Bishop Hilton Deacon, whose memoirs have been published in a book titled Bonded Through Tragedy, United in Hope, a remarkable account of the East Timor struggle through his eyes. In part one, Hilton spoke about his childhood, moving into the priesthood, work with the Aboriginal communities and overseas with Caritas. Today, East Timor. Can I take you back to 1975? And that was the the time of the invasion of East Timor. What was your awareness of Timor at that time? Almost none at all. In 1975, it it was like, um, oh, yes, East Timor. Is that where it is? Oh, gee, that's terrible. I read about as much of it as uh, most other people would have read, which was in the papers, and that was never, never correct. It was sectional interest stuff all the way through, and I never bothered. I was interested in the Aborigines, but I had already learnt at this stage by 75 that the future was not with the Aborigines because they were developing their own leadership, their own informed leadership. And I would be always prepared to talk with them and discuss with them, but never to tell them anything. And, and it's, it's been the case ever since because I, I think it's up to them to – and they do it. They do it very well. So I had a gap there, an intellectual sort of a gap, I suppose, but it was an emotional gap too. But no, uh, East Timor didn't – in 75, didn't mean terribly much to me. Well, post-1975, the, the long independence struggle began, well developed by the time you became intensely involved – Quoting Shanana Guzmao, Bishop Hilton gave us a voice in Australia at a time when our struggle was largely forgotten or ignored and around the world in various forums within the Catholic Church and the wider community. How did you develop as a, a Catholic priest to become a, a key figure in the struggle for self-determination? Well, I suppose, first of all, I had uh, academic qualifications and so that was an interest, but it wasn't like that really. I was the Vicar General in Melbourne. Vicar General is the bloke who goes round after the bishop and the archbishop rides around on his horse and you pick up the horse shit. Don't quote me on that one, will you? (laughs) That was what I had to do. It was rough, tough work. Now, one day I was sitting there minding my own business in the office. It was a tough job, actually. I didn't particularly like it, but I found it to be a challenge and all the rest of it. One day my secretary... She came to me and said, there's a group of people outside who want to see you. How many are there? Six. They came in 
and they were all Timorese. And they're the first Timorese I ever met. Now, the thing about them was there was a bloke there, Abel Guterres, who's now the ambassador for the East Timor in Canberra, when we are very close friends. Another one was Emilia Pires, and the present uh, government in East Timor was trying to put her in jail. She was the Minister for Finance under Shanana. I officiated her marriage to her husband, who's uh, Indian-Australian, a lovely fellow, and she's now in hiding. At one time, Forbes magazine had her as one of the 100 women in the world. It's quite extraordinary, you know. And she was number two. There was a, a, a local chieftain whom we call Leorai and his wife, equivalent to governor or whatever. There were two others. The, the names just slipped me. They came to see me, and, I said, and this was in October 1991. I said, what is it you would like? They said... You've heard about us, haven't you? I said, well, in the papers, yeah. And I had to almost plead ignorance, but I didn't say that, of course. And they said, we would like you to be our spokesperson. I said, what? They said, we not only know that you do it for the Aborigines, you've been saying things for Vietnamese and Sri Lankans, we need someone to speak for us, and we, we would like it to be you. I said, this takes my breath away a bit, but I'll, I'll have to talk to some people first because I, I occupy a job that's got its own responsibilities. But what they wanted to do, they wanted me to have or celebrate a mass in the cathedral on the anniversary of the invasion, December 6, 75. In 91, we're talking about. And, and I said, would you know how to organise a mass? And I, I couldn't get over it. They said, oh, we do this, we do this. And I said, well, go away and do that and come back and we'll have a talk. And I'll tell you if I'm able or how much I'm able. I've got to talk to the dean of the cathedral and the archbishop, et cetera, to get permission. So we had a cup of tea and they went away. And, and they, I, I found out later they felt very happy that they'd come and said hello to me. Well, uh, I spoke to Frank Little and he said to me, well, what do you think? And I said, oh, Frank, I've thought about it. I've had a few days to think about it before I asked you and I think maybe this is the way I ought to go. It's got all the things in it that I've been building up to try and face and follow for years. I can't say when I, when, when I used to pet my dog, I think I had these feelings. So he said, okay. But you've still got to be a vicar general. I said, oh, yes, all that. They came back. And you know when they came back? It was November the 14th, two days after the massacre. They came into my office, and you could see that it was dreadful. And I said, now, we're not going to have a mass to commemorate your invasion. We're going to have a mass to remember the people who were killed. I rang a couple of East Timorese here in Melbourne so that I could be prized of what was going on. Both had contacts with the Fallentil, which was the resistance group, and they said they believe that 291 or two people were murdered in Dili. 291. And I said, but the church has said there were 70 killed and they were all shot by Fallentil. 70. Uh, the uh, Indonesians uh, fled for cover. I said, no, that's not what happened. The Catholic Church is the only one that counts up there. 
the man who said it was it was in fact a Jesuit, I won't give you his name, and, and he was saying, I went to it when the massacre took place. There weren't 290. I rang a second one. I said, have you been in touch with the... Uh, with the underground up there. And he said, yes, how many? We don't really know, but it's well over 250. Terrible. Uh, that night I didn't have a very good sleep and I started thinking, well, what can we do? We, we had a mass and it was the most extraordinary occasion, I have to say. I, I did things I would never do any other time and I don't care about it. Uh, for instance, I preached and I would not preach from the pulpit. I told them, I'm going to preach to you but I'm not going to do it from the pulpits. I'm going to come down to the floor where you are and talk with you. And then I, I went to town on the politics of it and, and the newspapers. What happened out of it was there was no mention of it in any Australian newspapers, but there, was, there were two papers in, in Great Britain and two in America that reported that mass and things that were said. So you begin to learn what you're going to have to be up against. Now, that was the start of it. The words not worse, more intense as time went on. I went into East Timor in 92, in the first several months of 92. The, the Indonesians were in charge, and they didn't want me to go in. And I went in anonymously through Kupang and uh, eventually got there, went on a bus <laughs> to the border and got over and I stayed with Bishop Bellow, eventually formed an, a rather close relationship with what he was after and what he was up to. I've had a great deal of admiration for him ever since. And all of the perversity that I saw in, for instance, in the prisons, torture chambers that the Indonesians had, a particular hotel that's in uh, Bokau, for instance, were terrible. What they did... How did you get to go to these places? Uh, well, if you know people who know people who know other people, you can get anywhere in a little country like that. But weren't the Indonesians watching you all the time? Yes. Well, at least I, I'm presuming that. And the only reason why I can say it with some surety, there'd be a time and another time when I'd have to report to the Indonesians and they'd say, oh, yeah, but you did this, you said that, you were there. Now, how did they know that unless they had been reported? I had to live with that from 92 till 2002 when the place became independent. And you have to be really careful too that you don't put the local people in danger. Of course, all the way. I have a lot of time for some Indonesians, but I don't for a lot of others. They're terribly cautious. There's some people in the army, and there was a whole section of the army, Capacitors, for instance, who are really villains. I reckon they're criminal. They'll kill maim, do anything. And there are others who are just gentle, kind and all the rest of it. You had to sort all of this out. And I had to learn, uh, for instance, among the many things that you do when you go into these things, that yes, there are a lot of very bad people around and there are some good people around too and you've got to be able to find out where the difference is and how you can be helped and help each side. And that took a, f a fair bit of uh, working to do. Uh, but in the meantime, I found myself also coming involved in world affairs about East Timor. I mean, I went to Portugal, and the Portuguese were not allowed into East Timor. The bishops in Portugal, who I think reckon they're next to God Almighty or something, extraordinary people, couldn't get over that I, as a bishop, was able to 
sleep in the same house as Carlos Bello and, and say things in public. But when I was in Portugal, I said it, and the, and the president had me for dinner, and I just kept on pounding the... I was there for a week, and I was on television or radio for, for every day of the week. Now, for instance, my book, and that's a man called Adriano... Uh, what's his other name? He's a Leori. That's the thing. I, that's me there. We're talking about the cover of your book. Yeah, the cover of my book. The Portuguese were desperate to try and get back the, the position uh, before uh, the invasion, the, like the, that they owned East Timor, that it was a serfdom, a serfdom and serfdom okay. and all the rest of it. It really was. a And anything that was good in East Timor came from Portuguese culture and all that stuff. And it wasn't quite like that at all. I think that the poor East Timorese are still tossing up what to do about all of this uh, how much are they going to keep hold of things Portuguese? But the younger generations are starting to slip away from it. Mind you, there are some younger ones who will speak Portuguese till the cows come home. But when they chose Portuguese as one of their official languages rather than English, it was one of the fatal mistakes, I think. I personally think they made when they got their independence. Talk a bit more about some of those who went on that journey with you to realise that the true story of East Timor. It took you a number of years, even up to today. One important person is Bishop Bellow. Uh-huh. Who else? Joseph Ramos Horta. I got to know him very closely. And another one was Shanani Gushmao. I got to know him. Abel Guterres was another one. Emilia Pires was another one. A lot of people who were just ordinary citizens but who were significant others for the task at hand, whatever it might be, passing on information or getting some uh, food through or some money through from here to there and all this sort of stuff, all chains of contact, and I, I had quite a few of them. I went every year for a month. I spent my holidays, in other words, there rather than anywhere else. Uh, I had an occasional holiday, but I'd take it on to something else to sort of get right away from things. But I, I would bring things into the country. It might be documents. If they got into the hands of the Indonesians, I'd be an awful sort of trouble type. And I would give these things to various people. I had a couple of nuns who were rather uh, brazen like me, and I was able to get them to pass stuff around. A lot of these people had extraordinarily rich contacts among the underground. We called them the fell and till, and then there was a revolutionary movement among the youth in Dili and places like this, people like the Pintos, and uh, I got through to them all. I was very lucky. And a lot of them paid a very high price for their activism. Oh, yes, either imprisonment, uh, put torture. It's very hard to uh, say death, but I'm sure... Uh, uh, well, I do know a few who, who died... Uh, but how many there were who died, I'm, I'm never so sure because you never see somebody for, for, for a time and then you say, have you seen Constantino? Oh, he died uh, six months ago. <laughs> how did he die? Oh, they chopped his head off. That sort of stuff. I had to live with all of that. Very brave nuns in East Timor. I had contacts among various nuns, one group of them, and it's, it's a religious order that's also out here, the Salesians. 
They were very kind to me and they were great hosts to me. They always gave me a bed and breakfast and food. I was able to get from one end of East Timor to the other to visit places they'd never visited, even though they lived there for 15, 14, 30 years. It was quite incredible, the places I was able to get to. There are also Kenoshan sisters, another group, Italian group of people who worked very hard in East Timor, still do. There are other groups of people now. There are some Australian nuns that are up there, Mercy nuns, Good Samaritan nuns and so on. And they're good people for picking up bits of um, information. You've got to know what you're looking for, of course. Or it might be even stuff that you're not looking for, but you hear it and you find it's very useful. Well, then how important do you believe the Catholic Church was for the people of East Timor under that long, those long years of occupation? One's got to sort of talk at, a le- at an analytical level a bit higher than what you see at the gross rates. And, and I've made a public statement in the past. It was written down somewhere in, in about the year 2002 at Independence that there were two people who were able to focus the uh, mind and heart of the people of East Timor and, of course, that's always false because who knows what people are doing. But, but this is what I believe was the case. Where Shanana Gushmao and Carlos Philippe Chimenez Bello, that one really focused on the, the communitarian, the political, the social aspect of freedom and justice and uh, all the rest of it, and the other one held on to the religious one, but it wasn't uh, religious uh, denominational, it was religious social justice and all the rest of it. It was a, a wider brief being used by Bellow. In fact, Bellow was one of the bravest men I know in the public sphere. He even challenged the Vatican. He he, he challenged the, the United Nations and the Vatican didn't like it because they wanted to be the big timers. After all, East Timor was just an island with one bishop in it. It's now got three but it had only one in that. And Bello nearly uh, copped it. I, I, I can't say how I know, think he would have copped it, but I think he could have easily found himself at the end of a bullet. He's had, I think, 11 attempts on his life. None of them were successful, of course, because the people were rotten shots or they got it all worked out wrongly, but 11 times uh, he could say that he was um, getting made ready for the next life. They're the two that I, I think of. Oh, I think of a lot of others who are just as brave, young people, old people, and some of them have gone forever. What's the situation in East Timor now as you see it? When you only go up once a year, and I have to say this last couple of years, my mind has been otherwise occupied in things Catholic <laughs> I don't concentrate as easily on it as I have in the past, but I still am I'm picking it up again. I think that they're, they're having the historical chance to carve up their own future and make their country their own. I'm not sure how they're succeeding for a lot of reasons. Part of it is their own capacity to do what a lot of Asian cultures do. They are corrupt. They are corrupt there as they are in other places, and people take away thousands of dollars or whatever it is, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars and so on. Some of it's just terrible. It's not the the only thing, though. Uh, I believe that the Australian government 
has been reprehensible in the way in which it's behaved towards the East Timorese. You'll get um, foreign affairs ministers and prime ministers saying all sorts of pious political platitudes, and you'll always be aware of any politicians who do that, no matter who they are. Don't like what people say if they're foreign affairs ministers because they're, they're pursuing government lines rather than the truth of the matter. Now, uh, I'm making pretentious claims if I'm saying I know the truth of the matter, but I do know a fair bit. I know that the Australian government, for instance, on the maritime boundary situations, has done a great theft against the body politic of the East Timorese and still is doing it and saying they've got every right to do it because it was governed by treaty. The treaty, by the way, has been kicked out of court. In the meantime, who's benefiting? They're not, and we are. We're the ones that claim that we're helping them. No, I'm afraid I don't interpret it like that at all. I think the Foreign Affairs Department is, is partly at fault over this. They have propagated false information about East Timor, very pro-Australian. I won't mention names, though they're mentioned in books and things. You're encouraged by the, the young people of East Timor? I'm in touch with uh, quite a few of them, and they do give me, they give me pause to say, well, thank God, you know. But then I wish they'd, that they'd go about some things. In other words, but that's me saying what I'm saying, and I've got to be very careful about that. I've got to be in a different position now than what I was 10 years ago. 20 years ago, I was able to say things that were into their very heart and soul about freedom and freedom from uh, being tortured and being uh, having things stolen and all the rest of it. But it's different now. Uh, employment situation in East Timor is terrible. The health situation is terrible. Children go to school in East Timor, sit in class all day, no teacher. They stay there because they want to go to school, then they go home. I did see that too often, and I'm afraid I still see it too often. There are places when there are, there are children uh, get treated properly, but if you've got a lot of money and you want to go to the international school, you'll get the, one of the best educations anywhere in East Timor. But you've got to be um, a very important person's uh, child to be able to get into those sorts of schools. We need to finish up on a positive note, Hilton. And I mean by we... Australia particularly because the East Timorese made a contribution to our being saved from the suffering and pain and destruction of Japanese invasion in the Second World War and we don't say very much about it. Because the East Timorese did their little bit, they suffered mightily. The Japanese punished them. They went into the country and they it's now being said that they had no intention of going into East Timor. It wasn't worth going for. But they went into it and they killed off, I don't know how many thousand, but various authors talk about 40,000 were killed. Well, what are we doing for them? For instance, in the very early days when there was no doctor in East Timor anywhere, there were a few nurses, and a member of, of the little parliament went and approached an Australian Prime Minister who shall be unnamed, I, I might name him somewhere else, and said, will you train some doctors for us? And you know what the Prime Minister said? Oh, no, no, it's, it's too expensive. And then it was pointed out, well, it's interesting that you won't because Fidel Castro is doing it for us for nothing. And there are dozens of doctors now in East Timor and they're all Castro people and they're good men and women. I've, I've sat with them, I've, 
I've dined with him, I've talked with him, and I think that's one of those silly, stupid things that we in our stupid minds have decided to do this. They still need a lot of help. A lot of them have come here, they've settled down here now. They're good people, lovely people, but they love their own country. We should do our best to pay back a bit of a debt that we owe them. And that's Bishop Emeritus Hilton Deacon. And the book is titled Bonded Through Tragedy, United in Hope, and it's published by Garrett Publishing. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate with Rod Quantock is on again. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. MC extraordinaire Rod Quantock will host two teams of comedians debating whether fake news is real news. Comedians include Sean Bedlam, Gabe Hogan, Shirley Hood, Kirsty Mack, Morvan Smith and Pauline Fartson Hellchild. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. Corner Sydney Road and Dawson Street, Brunswick. Doors open at 6.30pm. For bookings, go to trybooking.com forward slash Q-A-E-N or call 9639-8622. That's 9639-8622, a 3CR supporter. This Friday, women's health researcher Dr Renata Klein will launch a book by Helen Labato, independent health researcher, titled Gardasil, Fast-Tracked and Flawed. There is zero scientific evidence that HPV vaccines have been proven to prevent one single case of cervical cancer in any country. I spoke with Helen earlier today and asked her first about the early history of the disease cervical cancer, tracing it through to today where it now commands a vaccine in many countries around the world. In the 19th century, 80% of cancer fatalities in women were from breast or uterine cancer, which sort of included cancer of the cervix. And they had numerous theories as to the cause. There were uh, the early 19th century doctors who sort of said that it was sexual excesses and immorality that was involved for it was observed the disease uh, was found in larger numbers among poorer city women than uh, amongst married women. But this was later proven to be wrong and that um, married women were affected about 86% and the single women about 5.8% and widows 7.5%. So really it wasn't what they originally thought. Then I think what happened was that As cancer developed and infectious diseases fell away with better living conditions, they concentrated on finding a disease for cancer because everyone was frightened of cancer and still are. They came to think, well, maybe germs are involved. And that led them to start looking for a virus. And the early virus that they came across was the herpes simplex But uh, when it was found that uh, women who didn't have the virus were affected with cervical cancer, along with some that did have the herpes simplex virus, they forgot about that one. But it wasn't long before they came across human papillomavirus with the same sort of results. There were women 
who had the virus who got cervical cancer and there were women who didn't have the virus who got cervical cancer. But nevertheless, they pressed on. The result that they developed a vaccine for human papillomavirus, supposedly to uh, prevent cervical cancer. Just before that vaccine came in, what was the prevalence of cervical cancer? In the Western countries, before the vaccine came in, the disease had actually halved due to better living conditions and also to the pap smear testing. The prevalence was, I think, around about five women per 100,000 in developed countries. It is said that overall about 1% of all women develop cervical cancer. And yet the human papillomavirus is so common that 80% of us have it. Now, if 80% of us have it, but only 1% of women get cervical cancer, there's something funny here, isn't there? Who's getting the vaccine? Well, it's given to all girls and boys now, the ages of 12 to 13. So that's just early high school, isn't it? It's not compulsory. It's not compulsory. They get sent a consent form home for parents to sign. I think in Australia it's pretty well taken up. I was watching a, um, a video the other day of a New Zealand couple that were giving an interview about their daughter who's been, become very, very unwell after the um, Gardasil vaccination. And the mother was saying that she had declined to sign the consent form. And when her daughter uh, got to school and got lined up to have the vaccination, she was bullied into having it. And the result? And the result is she's become very unwell. She apparently came home and got a, got a really raging headache, has become unwell, worsened. They have had to spend a fortune in uh, home, homeopathic and naturopathic treatment for their daughter. And as many of these, these girls uh, are in a similar situation, their adverse events have been uh, are recorded as well over 50,000 with um, 315 deaths. And these figures aren't even accurate because apparently very few are actually recorded. Those figures are mostly from, from the USA and some countries in Europe. So the figures are a lot higher than that because it's given in 130 countries around the world. So a lot of girls, you know, they're lucky their parents can afford treatment. But the medical system itself hasn't got anything to offer these very unwell girls. When these cases come up to the medical profession, how do they sort of justify it? Well, one of the, the young girls that I interviewed, Kristen Klulo, she first of all went to her local doctor, then went to specialists, neurologists, and about the second neurologist that she was taken to uh, asked her if she'd had any vaccines lately. And when she told him Gardasil, he said, oh, that'll be it, because he'd treated other girls. Now, this was back in 20, oh, 2011, 2013. But, you know, they don't seem to be speaking out about this. So it hasn't been banned in any country? Not actually banned. Japan has stopped promoting it. And since they have, their vaccination rate of uh, human papillomavirus vaccines has dropped to 
to uh, 1%. There is a case, big case, 63 women who are suing the, uh, the manufacturers and the government, and that case is uh, uh, taking place. France, Spain, quite a few of the European countries have got uh, lawsuits pending. In Ireland, they're very active. A well-known um, philanthropist has mentioned on YouTube that uh, about he knows a solicitor who has 75 cases already that are going to court. You know, people are becoming active, but in Australia we don't hear much at all. There is talk about giving this vaccine to babies? There is a risk that um, this will happen too, yeah. Uh, that's for a, a respiratory disease. So they, they are talking about giving Gardasil to babies. So I think that's being trialled at the moment. Who's made the money out of this vaccine? Well, it's um, Merck, the manufacturer. CSL is the distributor for New Zealand and Australia. And, of course, Professor Ian Fraser and his co-founder, Dr Jan Joe, also receive royalties. What do you hope your book will achieve? I think that it'd be good for parents to know this because it is taken up and it is being given really um, in, in high numbers in Australia. So it would be good if parents could read it. It would be a wake-up call, really. So if you could give the title and where people would be able to obtain it? Yep, it's called Gardasil, Fast-Tracked and Flawed. And um, it's um, available from Spinifex Press, which is www.spinifexpress.com.au. OK, thanks, Helen. Thank you. And that was Helen Labato talking about her book, Gardasil, Fast-Tracked and Flawed, and um, available through spinifexpress.com.au. You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR, where the time is 4.53. And you will remember next week, no regular program next week, but it will be the Radiothon where you have a chance to ring in for two hours, any time over that two-hour period, and pledge your support to this program. You can even ring through this week and... So you'd like to donate to Tuesday Home Time? That will be fine and you will be announced on the program next week if that's what you want. If you don't want to be announced on on the air, well, that's fine too. Yarra Council presents the 5th Annual Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2017. Opening on Thursday the 13th of July with Augie March at the Corner Hotel. Hosted in more than 40 music venues within the city of Yarra, the 10-day festival runs until Sunday the 23rd of July and features Ed Cooper, Dave Graney, the Letter String Quartet, Brooke Russell and Hungry Ghosts Reformation Show. For participating venues and tickets, go to leapsandboundsmusicfestival.com. A 3CR supporter... I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. 
I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band Stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. A successful public meeting was held in Faulkner on the 11th of May to both inform and strategise to force the clean-up of a highly toxic site in the suburb. There have been subsequent developments and I'm joined on the phone by Sue Bolton, a member of Socialist Alliance and a Moreland councillor in whose electorate this toxic site is situated. Sue, before we look at the latest development pertaining to this site... Could you give a, as briefly as possible a history of this site? It's in McBride Street in Faulkner. So this site is the site of an old chemical factory owned by New Farm, which is a major international chemical company. It backs on to the Mary Creek and during the late 50s till the mid-70s, they produced all sorts of toxic chemicals on the site, DDT, arsenic, and the components of Agent Orange, 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T, and they actually produced Agent Orange for the Vietnam War for the Australian US forces in Vietnam. The fact that they made those sorts of chemicals without really any safeguards for workers or nearby residents was absolutely dreadful for residents. All the older residents say that Faulkner stunk when this factory was in production. They remember the smell, the foul, foul smell. The smells were so bad, especially at night. They were worst at night. And so there are a lot of midnight demonstrations at that time, midnight and 4am in the morning, demonstrations outside the factory gates. The impact on residents apart from the smell, was that they couldn't grow anything in their gardens. Some residents even resorted to having plastic flowers in their gardens, I mean, the 50s and 60s, and even those lost their colour pretty quickly. And they couldn't keep paint on fences and houses. The chemicals stripped the paint off their houses and fences. Now, you've been involved with a, a campaign for a while now, how and why did you get involved? I got involved because I've always had an interest in these sorts of issues about poisoning and contamination by terrible chemicals. I'm also a local councillor in that area. That's part of my ward in Faulkner. And I've raised issues about this site in the past with the council on behalf of residents. But also I hate seeing big corporations, whether it's James Hardy with asbestos or New Farm with his chemical plant, get away with poisoning and, and destroying the lives of people. And part of the impact of this plant is that there was a cancer cluster, quite a significant cancer cluster in Faulkner as a result of this factory and also a smaller cluster across the creek in Reservoir at Lakeside Secondary College and the surrounding area amongst the teachers in particular. So this factory has had 
a terrible impact on the people living in the area and the surrounding area. And they used to pump their contaminated liquid directly into the creek and into the sewerage system. After they eventually stopped producing in Faulkner, they started producing in Laverton using the same disastrous practices in Laverton that they did in Faulkner and they still operate in Laverton today to the extent that the Werribee sewerage works had really high levels of dioxin as a result of the contaminated liquid being pumped into the sewerage system. And what's ramped this up in 2017 is a a notice was posted to say that the site was to be developed. That's what's ramped it up is a notice of application to develop the site. A lot of residents have moved into the area because it's a long time ago the factory was operating. A lot of residents don't know the history, but there are still a lot of older residents who do know a lot about the history, including the son of the woman who led the campaign to close down the factory and then get the site cleaned up, which was battle that went for over two decades. So Brian Snowden, this particular resident, approached me about this and we started to publicise this to nearby residents. People are very frightened because any building work on the site will have to penetrate the clay cap. So there was a limited clean-up of the site in the early 90s and then the site was clay-capped to keep the contamination contained and and away from people. When there was illegal building work on the site in 2013, the workers who had no idea what they were dealing with penetrated the clay cap and became dizzy, got headaches and had to go home. So we know that this site is still contaminated to some extent. We don't know to what extent, but it's certainly contaminated enough to cause workers to become dizzy and get headaches. So we don't trust any development occurring on this site and we believe there needs to be some final solution, preferably the site not to be touched again because we don't feel that it is worth the risk to dig up the contaminated soil on this site. Is this what came out of a a very large public meeting a couple of weeks ago? Yes, so there was a very large public meeting and a following well-attended organising meeting and a new group's been set up called Toxic Free Faulkner, which is focused on this site. And the campaign is focused on two things. One, to knock over the development application, which is for building two warehouses. And we know that the construction of the warehouses will have to penetrate the clay cap. But people are also keen to not only knock off this development application, but to finally deal with this site, to put it to bed so that we don't have to worry about future development applications occurring on this site when the older generation will have died off and won't know the history of the site. And I think this is important because in the development industry, developers are eyeing off contaminated sites as the next development boom, cheap land. We also know that there's not much historical memory of the history of these sites in the bureaucracy. I found that at Morland Council, fairly blasé, 
approach about the level of contamination and lack of knowledge about the history of health effects as a result of this site contaminating the land and the waterways etc so we can't rely on governmental departments and so forth to look after this for us and even with the EPA after it was set up the residents had to battle the EPA to get them for many years to get them to acknowledge that this site was contaminated. So yes, the EPA did say it was suitable for light industrial uses in 1995, subject to certain conditions. But I would argue that if a site is not suitable for people to live on top of, then it's also not suitable for workers to work on top of. And we certainly know from when illegal building work happened, that it's not safe for workers, construction workers, who might be dealing with this stuff, certainly without safety suits or something and breathing apparatus and so forth. Residents are very suspicious. They do not want any kind of development occurring on the site. And there have been too many examples where development has been allowed either on, on top of toxic sites or near toxic sites relatively recent one in Victoria, or maybe it's a few years ago now, is the situation in Cranbourne when over 200 people had to be moved from their houses in an emergency evacuation from near the Cranbourne tip. The tip was giving off so much methane that the houses are in danger of blowing up with the residents inside them. And then everyone was pointing fingers at each other because development had been allowed in the buffer zone, what was meant to be a buffer zone between residences and the tip. In Brisbane, I'm aware of an example in the 80s where housing development was built on top of a disused gold mine and then suddenly in the 80s, the cyanide and arsenic, etc., started oozing to the surface and people suddenly started getting sick. So we don't want a situation like that happening with this site in Faulkner and you could say with other toxic sites scattered around Victoria and, and Melbourne. And in fact, there's very little regulation of toxic sites. Not all toxic sites are even listed by the EPA. So the EPA's list of toxic and contaminated sites is only limited, doesn't include all of the toxic sites. And so if these sites are not dealt with while residents are still alive who know the history of these sites, then we're in danger of another catastrophe occurring because governments might say, oh, well, it's not too bad. We also know that the industry of environmental auditors, apparently this is quite a small industry in Australia compared to the United States. So most of these environmental auditors also have to work for developers and mining companies and and so on and so forth and so they're not all truly independent so there's some epa approved environmental auditors who are really good and there's some who are really terrible uh, and they're probably the ones that the development industry goes to to get their studies done all of the time they're not entirely independent and you know, residents themselves have had the experience where, you know, they've been told that unsafe things are safe. And when the EPA finally moved to get New Farm to clean up the site, 
it was only after they were massively embarrassed by Greenpeace at their Laverton site in 1990. Before that, the EPA had denied there were any problems at the site. We just can't trust the governmental authorities to do the right thing by people. And then there was a new twist after the public meeting at the beginning of the month where the site was listed for sale online and I'll just read one sentence identified for future residential development by the city of Moreland what's the story there yeah so that is a story where the strip of factories so there's a strip of industrial land on one side of the street the side that backs onto the Mary Creek and on the other side of the street is all residential. Because there have been so many problems with the factories north of this site becoming so large, too big for a a residential street, the council has flagged that strip for transition from industrial land to residential land. But I'm assuming, and this is something I've got to find out, yet and still haven't been able to find out that they could never zone this particular site for residential because it's contamination listing with the EPA. So the EPA has not approved this site for residential so there is an environmental overlay on this site. I think that's misleading advertising but of course you know so yes in theory council has zone this whole strip as being transitional to residential but my understanding is they couldn't make this particular site residential because of the decision of the EPA that it's not suitable for residential. And I believe that notice is now being taken offline. Yes that's right and I you know think this is also a problem with toxic sites is how can a real estate agent lists a site which is known to be toxic, like lists a site for sale without any kind of indication that this is a contaminated site. So there are a whole lot of issues about the management of toxic sites in Victoria. I mean, this should be illegal to list a site for sale without something indicating that this is a contaminated site. But I think the fact that it has been listed for sale indicates that the the developer realised they were going to have problems getting their development application through because of the community campaign. And I think they are spooked by the community campaign, which was really quite big, 100 people at a public meeting in Faulkner. I mean, it's a long, long time since you've had a public meeting around an issue like this in Faulkner. So, you know, there's a strong community response on this issue. And a lot of the people who went there were families with very young children. That's right. So I think a lot of new residents had no idea that this site was contaminated or if they did, they'd heard little bits and pieces here and there but didn't know the history of the site. And so that public meeting was really well attended by quite a range of residents. There were some of the historic residents, the older residents who've lived in the area for a long time, know the history of the site, have had family members die of cancer as a result of playing in the creek where the waste was pumped into the creek. There were the children of older residents who may not even live in the area now, 
that know the history of the site and were there to basically fight for the site to be dealt with because of what had happened to their parents' generation. And then there were the younger, newer residents who've moved in, often with young children, who want to know about this site and want the site cleaned up. How are the residents going to keep this campaign going? The big issue of resolving the permanent solution to the site, that is the harder task. The easier task will be, uh, will be fighting this development application. But residents realise that even if we defeat this application, there'll be a future application at some point down the track. Now, there's actually two sites at the epicentre of the contamination, but only one of them has a development application on it. Original Factory brought across two titles, two land titles, which are both owned by different people now. Both sites have had illegal building work on them. And then the surrounding sites were contaminated because the waste contaminated waste liquid was pumped through open drains, there were spillages, seepages, etc., down to the creek. So there's never been any kind of environmental audit on the surrounding sites. Now, I managed to get a motion through council calling for an independent environmental audit of the site and the surrounding sites. Now, that doesn't mean it will happen, but council did vote it up, even though a sizable number of councillors voted against an independent environmental audit. Group is determined to knock off the development ex uh, application, get an independent environmental audit, but also people are pretty united in not wanting any kind of development on the site, just wanting the site sealed off for some sort of open space, as has happened in the Maribyrnong Council area where almost all of their sites are contaminated. People just want a final solution. Now, the last aspect of that is the thing that will probably be hardest to fight for, but we've received advice from Harry Van Most at the Western Region Environment Centre where they're probably the only environmental organisation that does campaigning around toxic site issues. You know, so they've had to take on the authorities and they say that some of the recommendations out of a recent inquiry into the EPA could make our case stronger, especially as this inquiry recognised the need to deal with legacy sites, as in companies moved on but the site is still heavily contaminated. We definitely want to try and make use of those provisions which the government claims to support but, of course, we've you know, got to see what happens. But the only guarantee of anything, any precautions on the site, will be the resident campaign. Who can authorise the audit? Is that a council thing or the residents? The council has passed a motion calling on the EPA to do an audit. The residents want the EPA to consult the community on the scope of such an audit, but the EPA would be the ones who'd have to do the audit because there's all sorts of complications. I mean, even if we had some friendly, you know, environmental auditor, like you'd have to get permission of the owners of the land and, and to have access to the land to test the soil and so forth. So um, it's actually a big effort, 
because it's not just the immediate site, it's the surrounding sites as well, the whole area that's likely to be contaminated. So that's quite a big job and probably quite an expensive job. And so there's a question of who foots the bill, where I imagine the various authorities, council, EPA, state government would all point the finger at each other. We will have to really battle to win such an audit. But I think, you know, this is really a crime against humanity by companies like New Farm. I mean, what companies like this are doing is similar to what James Hardy did with production of asbestos well decades after it was discovered that asbestos kills people. And so, you know, these companies, New Farm's moved on now, and I'm not sure that there's any way they can be held legally responsible now that they've on-sold the site to multiple different owners. But the company still operates in Melbourne. They still have a plant which still produces Agent Orange in Laverton. And there are other similar companies like Monsanto, I think, has a site in Sunshine or somewhere in the western suburbs. So, you know, there's a whole lot of companies like this that are still producing stuff that is poisoning the land the factories sit on and the residents surrounding the factories. And while I know standards have improved and, you know, they can't get away with quite what they used to get away with, you know, they're still getting away with a huge amount. They've made billions of dollars out of producing this terrible toxic chemicals. They haven't been forced to pay for the cleanup. Instead, the residents some of the nearby residents and the workers who work in the factories have paid with their lives through getting cancer as a result of the contamination. Time to put a stop to it all. Absolutely, and that's our goal. And that's Moreland City Councillor Sue Bolton, who's also a member of Socialist Alliance, talking about the site, New Farm, former New Farm, former New Farm site in McBride Street in Faulkner. And I'm pretty sure that the residents aren't going to let this one go. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9 419 Last week, the Centre for the Study of the Inland presented a paper titled Who Owns the Amazon? Brazil and the Future of Life on Earth by Dr Ralph Newmark, the Director of the Latin American Studies Institute at La Trobe University. And reading from the introductory material for the talk, Alongside China and India, Brazil is an emerging economic giant. It is also custodian of a large part of the environmentally sensitive Amazon basin. As Brazil attempts to rise to developed world status, the exploitation of its natural resources is a threat to the entire planet. 
Yet Brazilians have a right to a decent life and are only doing what the developed nations have done for centuries, pursue economic growth. When I spoke with Ralph last week, I asked him first to briefly explain his interest in the Amazon, which relates to another life, in a way, before his career as a historian. I started my career as an environmental microbiologist, actually. I worked at the EPA in the laboratories, connected with the State Rivers and Water Supply Commission for a number of years after the EPA started off in the 1970s. Well, I was one of those people that did science because I was interested, but I think I was not really going to be a scientist. Uh, I think I was someone who was interested in history, political activities, Bought a one-way ticket to Latin America after I'd worked a number of years, saved up some money and uh, backpacked around Latin America. I think, in a way, the experience in Latin America changed my life completely. Uh, I mean, clearly, growing up in Australia in an urban context, you don't sort of see the poverties and the results of colonialism in the extremes you get in Latin America. And the country I particularly became interested in was Brazil. So I came back to Australia went back to uni and uh, now I run the Institute of Latin American Studies at La Trobe. We need to identify the concept of the Amazon Basin. I'm sure most of us are aware that it's on the northern or central part of South America, encompassing which countries? It's a vast area. About the size, actually, of the continental United States. That's the Amazon itself. So it's enormous. About 60 to 70% of it is within Brazil. But around the fringes of it, clearly it intersects with uh, Guyana, Suriname, a bit of uh, French Guiana, but also Venezuela, Colombia, Peru, uh, even Ecuador and Bolivia. So there's sort of that ring around uh, each country has a stake in it, but uh, clearly the majority of the Amazon is in Brazil. And is the whole of the Amazon rainforest, or are there other parts as well? It is. The, the, the core of it is rainforest. Of course, part of the issues we'll be discussing is that it's getting nibbled away uh, around the peripheries, but also within the centre as well. But it is the richest ecosystem in the world uh, in terms of its plant life and diversity of, of species. What actually so, is the de- definition of a rainforest? Well, I think a rainforest is, is a, within a tropical... Um, is it certain, always tropical? Yes, as far as I understand. And and in fact, as in most, that whole band of, uh, I suppose you could say, between the Tropic of Cancer and Tropic of Capricorn, that sort of central belt of the world, it contains many of these uh, you know, so warm, deep foliage, uh, high levels of rain, a lot. And I think this is the point we'll get to, a lot of photosynthesis goes on. And this is really the key to what we're talking about because it is a great sink for carbon dioxide as I mean, basically, this whole issue of Brazil and the Amazon goes back to the most simple formula in the world, which is that plants consume carbon dioxide and churn out oxygen. And how much oxygen is it estimated that this is produced in the Amazon? Well, I can't put a number on it, but clearly what's happening, and this is what global warming's about, is that for the last 200 years, the industrialisation has been based on fossil fuel burning. 
Now, you know, it started clearly in the um, older times with wood, but when it moved into coal and then petroleum, we have really had the concentrations of carbon dioxide being pumped back into the atmosphere are unprecedented. And I mean, those people who are climate change deniers, <laughs> it just can't be done because clearly no period in history the human action has generated so much fossil fuel. I mean, after all, all those carbon elements that are in um, oil and coal, etc., are trapped, and we're releasing it again. This is why, I mean, the Amazon, in a sense, is helping to keep some sort of lid on it to an extent. However, we need two things. We need clearly a reduction in um, carbon dioxide emissions, but we also don't want to pull down are the largest rainforest in the world because in many ways that is an oxygen generator, a carbon sink, and because of the issue of turning carbon dioxide into plant matter. So again, it, it traps it. What about the people who live in the Amazon? <laughs> yes, well, there are, of course, indigenous people in Brazil. This is one of the most interesting aspects. I mean, clearly all conquered, ultimately settler societies since the 16th century, if you like, in terms of the global maritime expansion of initially Portugal and Spain, then obviously the British and Dutch empires and all these. Um, that in fact, when you take a land, and I think the United States is a good example, Australia is a good example, is that there are people living there. The best way to do this is to demonise them and turn them into subhumans, and then you can take their land. I mean, in many ways, it was done by the Spanish by saying that these people, well, they're not Christians. This is a way, you know, that we say that we have, therefore we uh, can proselytise, but we can also um, taint them with other things. Cannibalism is another classic, the way that um, there were issues of some minor issues of cannibalism in the Americas prior to Columbus going there. But the point basically is that if you blow this into, uh, you know, live on humans as opposed to uh, minor rituals there are ways of demonizing now once you do that you can take the land and i mean i think this is in the brazilian case it was a savage removal of people and either getting rid of the people who lived on the coastal areas and pushed many of them back into i mean there were probably about 200 different indigenous groups in brazil when the portuguese turned up there in 1500 Obviously, the numbers decreased enormously, but also, in a sense, retreated from their coastal areas, which the uh, the Portuguese colonised first, into the interior. There have been various attempts, and in fact, it's interesting, I think the 2008 constitution did try and give some level of protection to the people, but there's one point about it is that when they're on land that suddenly becomes valuable, nothing matters. <laughs> I think the best example of this is the Belumonchi Dam, which was built on the Shingu River in Amazonia, which flooded vast amounts of indigenous land. There were groups there. Well, you know, they needed the water for a hydro scheme. The irony of this, of course, is that hydroelectricity is not a form of electricity that it's a renewable in the sense that it doesn't burn carbon. Um, however, it, it, it actually has its worst effect. It's flooded vast areas. And, of course, the decomposition of the um, vegetable matter is creating methane as well. So this development is a, it's a precious area. But the thing, I suppose my point is, do we blame the Brazilians? And I think that's wrong. We all have to take responsibility, in my view. What sort of other industries did they 
develop in the in the Amazon basin, the yeah. Portuguese. Yeah. Under the Portuguese, which lasted from 1500 to 1822, a long time, basically it was sugar cane on the coast. So they completely destroyed the coastal Atlantic forests and put in sugar cane because sugar cane grew well there. Not indigenous, of course, it comes originally probably from New Guinea, but it, uh, it was known in the Mediterranean as well. Brazil were these waves, if you like, of boom, economic booms and busts. So when the Portuguese turned up, sugar became dominant. After the sugar, the centre of the sugar industry of the world moved to the Caribbean, after a short Dutch occupation of um, northeastern Brazil, and there was a gold rush. So there was sort of often saved by these in Minas Gerais state, there was a gold rush. And when that ran out, coffee. And so right into the 20th century, coffee was the backbone of Brazil. Not in Amazonia, though. This was grown in the um, south round the Sao Paulo area. But, but, there was a short-lived... When Amazonia becomes into the global economic regime uh, world is the mid-19th century, where there's a rubber boom. Now, rubber is indigenous to Brazil, and with the invention of vulcanization in the 1830s by Goodyear, actually, still around in tyres... Charles Goodyear, I think it was, rubber could be made harder and uh, it lasted longer through uh, adding sulphur to it. So it was an industrial process based on a natural product of latex. Now, what happened was that there was a rubber boom in Brazil in the um, late 1800s, such that what they called the rubber barons (laughs) were the wealthiest people in the world. And they were centred in Manaus, this city to a thousand miles up the river, such that these people were so wealthy in the 1880s, 1890s, that they built an opera house in the middle of the jungle. If you've seen Fitzcarraldo, the movie, it's the opening scene set there where Caruso supposedly sang there. I've been to the opera house, it does exist. But the whole thing collapsed because the British stole the rubber seeds took them to Kew Gardens in London, which was the centre of global biological imperialism. Shipped out to Malaya, set up in nice little rows, because in Brazil they were natural and people had to go into the natural forest. Uh, And that was the end of the rubber boom. So that was the only time the Amazon really was part of the world economic system, but that collapsed by about 1920. How environmentally destructive was that? Well, in Brazil, not so bad. It was terrible for the local people because the indigenous people were virtually enslaved to tap the trees. But the trees themselves existed in their natural environment. This is why the British were so keen to put it in plantation form, but in their own, not in Brazil, because that was controlled by the Brazilian Empire, but in Malaya, which was a colony. But the terrible thing in many ways happens in the 1930s when Brazil is hit very hard by the uh, global depression. The price of coffee goes through the floor, And a president comes to power in Brazil, a man I know very well, Getulio Vargas, and his dream is to industrialise Brazil. He realises that countries that just export primary products are doomed to underdevelopment. He wants to industrialise. Clearly, by the time into the 1950s, he kills himself, actually, in 1954, Brazil opens up into an idea saying, well, look, why aren't we as developed as the United States? This isn't by the 50s. We're as big as the United... We're bigger than the United States. This is a powerhouse country up up in the North America. We've got everything. Why not? And, of course, the issue is we have underdeveloped our interior, so let's go. 
And this is this it was called in Brazil desenvolvimentismo, which means developmentism. And this was the idea that if you draw an arrow, you build a, uh, the city of Brasilia. Now, Brasilia was built in this period, which is an artificial city in the middle of nowhere, you might say. But if you look at on a map of, of Rio and, and Sao Paulo and you draw a line to Brasilia, it's an arrow to the interior. Most artificial cities in the world do have political basis, economic basis, and um, house in Canberra, Washington, D.C., built on the swamp, yeah, <laughs> because of issues of north and south. What did the network of road building do to the Amazon? Shocking. This, of course, was part of the idea you can't get in there without building roads. And, of course, roads bring people, and people bring all sorts of, of issues. Clearly, um, frontier towns are pretty tough places, and uh, crime, prostitution, it's all there. But the key issue I wanted to mention was that the, the products, no more rubber that's gone, beef, cattle and soya beans. This really is the basis and logging. Which came first? Uh, well, the beef. Uh, soya beans was later. That's why I always say that uh, vegetarians can't have a clear conscience because <laughs> they're destroyed. <laughs> Sorry, out there. Because <laughs> beef's a bad thing but soya beans are worse. Because basically what they do is they pull down and bring in cattle for export. In fact, I believe that the largest, the main exporter of beef to the United States is Brazil. Soya beans, of course, on the coattails of China. Now, the point about this is that the deforestation that followed this expansion, because Brazil wants to be a developed country. I mean, in a sense, they look around the world and they see every developed nation has exploited its resources. After all, Australia did deforested most of this country where were forests, put in crazy animals called sheep, destroy, I mean, absolutely destructive. I mean, in a way, they're saying, well, look, we want to be a developed country. We want, I mean, in the purest form, schools. Uh, we want health systems. You've got to pay for this. And the only way you can clearly is earning export dollars. But the problem is that Brazil happens, its interior is crucial to the world. What are we going to do about it? <laughs> That's an issue. I do have some ideas. but uh, I'll come to those in mm. a minute. What diseases did these people bring into the forest with them? Disease is an interesting point. Clearly, the indigenous people in the Americas had, had had no exposure to illnesses, common illnesses that we would think as... Well, smallpox is a bad one. That's cool. I mean, there was no smallpox prior to the... Uh, European invasion. But things like influenza and measles, which are pretty nasty, but they don't kill you, but they certainly did wipe out. Uh, if it's any consolation, if I can be mildly flippant here, um, it's thought that the only disease that really went the other way was syphilis, uh, because apparently the first syphilis outbreak in Naples were... were um, there were Columbus sailors were in Naples, I think it was eight, uh, seven, uh, 1494-ish. <laughs> Sorry, that's a bit crude. But the point basically is, is that disease did ravage the communities. But I've got to be, I really want to make the point that if we just say, well, it wasn't the Euro's fault that the, the indigenous people were, you know, decimated, they didn't know they had, you know, diseases, you know, we didn't know anything about viruses in those days. I think it was more land and cultural destruction. Certainly disease did kill a lot of people, but it wasn't this because that really says that, oh, it's almost accidental. And it's not true because 
there are many examples of, in fact, opening virgin forests, releasing... This is a good example in Mexico. There's theories now that the demographic collapse in Mexico between 1500 and 1600, which arguably the population of Mexico dropped from around 20 million to 1 million in 100 years. That's a hell of a drop. Now, people say, oh, well, you know, they brought smallpox and uh, diseases. But actually, the environmental destruction that the Spanish brought in going into virgin forests that were not pulled down by the indigenous people, they lived in a sense in some harmony with it, released uh, viruses that were in the natural uh, populations of of, of animals that basically opened new diseases. What I'm trying to say is like HIV, Ebola, these viruses are actually probably due to environmental destruction and and viruses crossing the, uh, what you might, the species line. So they've always possibly been in benign illnesses within, say, primates or squirrels or whatever. But they can, once you open up these areas. And so the point I'm trying to make here is that disease was a factor, but we can't blame disease, in my view, of the destruction of these people. How destructive was it for the native animals? Clearly, when you destroy an ecosystem, you're going to destroy the animals by extension. The animal populations of these areas was not necessarily enormous, but the point is that in ecology, everything fits in. So, you know, you pull down a tree, well, you know, we're talking thousands of acres of trees here, and clearly the, the life suffers. But of course, they're not interested, the developers in um, toucans and tapirs and sloths. They're interested in cattle, <laughs> so they don't care. Important place for medicine development? Yeah, a couple of points. What can we do about this issue? If we just let it go, eventually they'll pull the whole thing down and as hamburger (laughs) production and soya products. We've got to stop them, not blame them. What the answer is, is this, is a, this Amazonia is a cornucopia of plants and amazing products that could be used in pharmacy. Now, I'm not saying give it to Big Pharma. I'm saying that the, it becomes a conservation area that's not touched but can be used for research into pharmaceuticals. But the indigenous peoples must have used all those well, plants. They, yes, and in fact, maybe learning from them a bit like uh, we should in Australia. Again, you know, again, this is this arrogance of Eurocentrism and say, so, you know, these are these primitive people. What do they know? You know, no agriculture. They did have agriculture. And this is because they don't have Western agriculture, because they didn't see fences, they didn't see private ownership of land. Again, all these indigenous people are condemned to being um, savages. You know? But I think the point is that already some products are the indigenous products to Amazonia you do see around. For example, not that I use it, but Red Bull, I don't know this drink that people seem to be having, um, it's loaded with Guarana. Now, Guarana is an indigenous berry in the Amazon and it happens to be, whether you like it or not, the most highly concentrated uh, form of caffeine. And that's why these, you know, red energy drinks. Now, what I'm arguing is we don't turn the Amazon into a caffeine farm. What we do is that we, in other places, we plant guarana. But, I mean, you can, you say you use it. Uh, acai berries. I don't know if um, people out there who are 
into antioxidants. Uh, this is said to be the strongest, whether it's true or not. Uh, so you see, you know, uh, smoothies made of acai berries, as that sort of purple berry. But in terms of pharmaceuticals, it's a cornucopia. It just needs the research and it needs to be preserved. So it can help humanity. Uh, whereas if we go on destroying it, I think what's, you know, it's rather interesting. We're so sort of human-centric, aren't we? We say, you know, that's the end of humans. Well, it would be the end of life on Earth if there's no oxygen. Well, what measures are there in place to make sure that this doesn't happen? Right, and this is where the key to the other issue, because my, the, the problem is, as you know, in Brazil is in utter turmoil at the moment. This is because in 2002, extraordinarily, a centre-left party won the presidency. It was called the PT, Partido Trabalhadores, the Workers' Party, interestingly enough. The president became was Lula, uh, whose nickname, everyone has nicknames, Lula. He was a metal worker, uh, and, uh, originally came from the northeast of Brazil. So he's the classic poor person who went, um, went to the south in Sao Paulo, became president of the Metal Workers Union. Now, this bloke stood for the presidency four times. Uh, no one ever thought he'd ever win. But the, the, the country was in such a mess, the middle classes decided, well, let's try this guy because the, the conservatives were, uh, weren't doing much of a job. Anyway, he won. And of course, as soon as you get into power, I think our Labour Party's found this, is that you, you can't necessarily do what you like. And I mean, the power of the oligarchs, the elites, world neoliberalism. Um, he did a little bit in terms of trying to a little bit um, redistribute wealth to an extent. I mean, there became some more welfare programs. And try and basically stop the rise in deforestation. Now, this was a policy to an extent, but a minor, and it did stop the acceleration. His successor, Jilma Rousseff, was the first female president of Brazil ever. She was impeached last year, just before the Olympics, if you remember. Now, this is a terrible thing because the people that impeached her was, was shifting coalitions in the uh, Brazilian Congress, but basically she was deserted by a right, centre-right party that had backed them, and this is the problem. And uh, the head of that party, Michelle Tamer, took over as president. By the way, she was impeached due to uh, allegations of corruption. But guess who's, who's now about to be impeached for corruption? It's Tamer, right? Ironically, the person who would replace Tamar if he was impeached, who I think is, is the Speaker of the um, Lower House, he's also under investigation. So it's a mess. <laughs> Meanwhile, the deforestation's picked up. It's gone under the Tamar regime. He has, in other words, taken the lid off a lot of... Um, it didn't stop. It just slowed. Now it's accelerating. Just in again. a couple of months. Uh, in, well, it's, what, eight months, nine months, mm. yeah. Because, of course, they're pro-business, you know. Now, I don't know when to get to this point, but the problem is corruption. Again, I stress here that it's not just Brazil, and I think it's, it is a, an outrage to say that, well, Latin countries are riddled with corruption because, you know, they are that type of person. This is racism at its worst level. You've got to understand that when the Europeans got to Latin America, and Brazil's a good example, vast tracts of land were given to strongmen or favours people who'd been in favour with the um, kings and queens of, of Spain and Portugal. Now, this ends up you develop an oligarchy. What you get here is basically five, ten, maybe 
20, 30 families, control the whole country. And, of course, this goes on for years. So you get the development of an oligarchic system of power. You get the idea, and usually run by men, of course, so you get patriarchy. You get ideas of the way you get anywhere is through favours. So it's anti-meritocracy, and it's basically deep, deep corruption. This is a historical process that you can't get rid of overnight. And so in Brazil and in Latin America, this uh, idea of concentration of power in, in, in a small number of hands, oligarchic, it's our creation. It's not them. This is how we conquered land. It's a bit different to Australia where there were quite a lot of small settlers who got um, tracts of land here. It was a very different – you've got to see they, there's more plantation, latifundia, fazendas over there. So the answer to me is we've got to pay Brazil not to cut, it, cut down the Amazon. Now, you might laugh at that, but I often ask my students, put your hand up if you'd pay a dollar on everything you bought, everything, say a tax, a dollar, if you knew it would go to Brazil – and not corruptly, because <laughs> you know where it would end up, that it would stop them pulling it down and give Brazil the money it wants to develop its industries in the south rather than these ridiculous hamburger industries in, in, in the rainforests. If you knew that, would you do it? And most say yes, but, of course, it's a bit of a pipe dream, but something's got to happen. Well, it can't be a pipe dream forever. No. I mean, the point is when you have governments... Well, Mr... <laughs> Be careful what I say, but um, present president of the United States, he hasn't signed the Paris. I mean, there have been many, many, um, as you know, multi. There were two meet two conferences in Rio itself, which is interesting. Twenty years apart, I think, setting out some level of emission controls, these sorts of things. But when you get your Tony uh, <laughs> Tony Abbotts and when you get these deniers, stops that. And I, I mean, the other point is we've got to work on a number of things. Clearly that the money goes to development projects in Brazil, like, how, like housing, like um, schools, like hospitals. This is what should be the money being earned by, by selling meat and soya beans. And, and well, it isn't. It just creates the rich. And I mean, we have a global problem of disproportionate wealth. I think it's going to take a catastrophe. Look, it really is depressing to say this, but a an, a, a, an environmental catastrophe for people to do something. And, and it might be too late. And what would that look like? I think it would be climate change that becomes so... I mean, it's already starting. I think with these people who say, well, there's always been climate change, you know, look at the Ice Age, look at this, look at that. I mean, but clearly in no other period of human history has there been such an intense release of carbon from trapped sources through coal and petroleum. It's so much in a concentrated time. We're not talking millions of years here. We're talking 200 years. What will it look like? Well, maybe Melbourne underwater might be a start. <laughs> well, where's this global responsibility? Who's going to start it off? I don't know. Um, the trouble is that the sort of uh, you know, democracy is a very interesting word. Uh, the way it operates, and some may well argue that we have a democracy in the uh, I use the word in inverted commas free world, whatever that is. Um, is basically a dictatorship of every four years. Now, basically, you vote, 
And then for the next four years, you don't have much input of what the government does, but you can kick them out next time. However, when the election comes around, you pull the race card out, you know, you create fear. Uh, basically, Trump's a beauty at that. Well, Mexicans are raping, you know. You know, I mean, you know, the sorts of things that at that election time where the media and everything becomes exaggerated and distorted, then you vote with emotion. And I think we've seen this in the United States. The irony in the States is that they've elected a man who is the result of neoliberal capitalism uh, on the basis that he's going to turn back the rust, the rust belts. <laughs> There's so many ironies. Uh, but seriously, I think, well, it's all serious. The idea, I think, in the end is I think we need people responsible. Maybe we need a continuous input into government. Well, what other people are talking about this as well as you? This is part of the problem. The left in Brazil is split. This is actually a terrible situation. When Lula came in, and I think this happens here, I think we could uh, see an analogy with our Labor Party, that uh, the Labor Party very much moved to a neoliberal stance. I mean, it's certainly softer in some ways in terms of welfare and um, than the present Conservative Party here. What's interesting is that when Lula failed to make major redistributive policies and really, in a sense, became a sort of um, centre-lefty Labour Party type of government, but certainly not curtailing this massive accumulation of wealth in, in few hands. The left split, as you would expect. Right over the people, I think, who are the best hope in Brazil, and of course they've been really hit hard, is the MST. This is the Movimento Sem Terra, the landless people, the movement of landless people who have actually split away from the, um, the Lula government and the Gilma government. The problem is the left comes together when it's under attack and you've seen in the streets of Brazil there are people with red and the unionists and uh, the green, there is a green party, Partido Verde. So they come together when an outrage like a coup occurs, which did occur last year. But there are such differences, and this has always been a matter of the left has comes together when the, there is this right-wing coups. However, in a way, when they're in power, they split. There are people talking about this. But there is one factor that we you know, would never happen here, is that the boys in uniform... They went back to the barracks in 1985 after a savage coup in 1964. The joke going around is there won't be a military coup in Brazil if, because people are in the streets every day. It's quite chaotic. And this is what brought them out in 64 in many ways. But the joke going around is that why would they have a coup? They don't want the job. <laughs> no, one can, no one wants the job as president because it's such a, a mess. But believe me, I think if there are if, if this continues for an extended period, I think they might, because the military in Brazil it comes from that issue of strong men, oligarchs. They see themselves as the ultimate arbiters of the political scene, and if you push them too far, they might come out again. I really hope that never happens, but I don't, can't see much of a solution because basically the corruption's so endemic that it's hard to... Because all sides indulge in it because that's how you do things. But it's a historic problem. It's not, if you like, a cultural problem. And some of those people out in the streets are the Indigenous peoples who have come... <laughs> well, yes. Is yes. that new? 
Well, there have always been, there have been protests. I mean, the Indigenous people over the years have drawn on all sorts of methods, actually. I think the one that comes to mind was the use of international celebrities flying in. Obviously, Sting, I think there's a wonderful documentary on him trying to help stop that dam, which was built, unfortunately. He slowed it. Mick Jagger, you know, these, I mean, I, you know, pop, it's this sort of thing. I mean, I, I'm, uh, problems with that in my view. However, what we've seen in Brasilia is indigenous protests in the street, you know, marching up and even the photo of them shooting arrows at the Congress building. The problem is that under the, uh, the Tamar government, this is the problem, is that they are so right-wing, they're pro-development in that sort of worst aspect of the word, and uh, indigenous lands that had been guaranteed are being taken. The other problem is that there are extrajudicial killings of, of um, people trying to protect the land. You see, the problem is the rule of law out in the frontier. There are vigilantes. I mean, there's many examples of, um, well, even nuns, and but, but also activists. I tell you what, it's a very dangerous job being an activist. In many the... environmental oh, activists. Oh, oh. I mean, and these are hired guns. These are not but the police, of course, you know, what can you do? I mean, again, this is this is deep results of colonialism and the leg what I call well, the legacy of colonialism. There are sociology people call it coloniality, all these sorts of words. But this is the legacy of hundreds of years of colonialism, which we imposed, we meaning the European types, at the expense of other people. And now uh, the world is threatened, clearly on an ecological level. I think it's going to take clearly some sort of global initiative. But when you have party politics, and as I say, you know, when you get a Trump sort of saying, oh, I don't think I'll follow the last Paris Accords or whatever, for short-term gain, it's pretty tough. Sadly, we might have to learn the hard way, which is such a catastrophic environmental happenings, <laughs> events, that People really do start, it may be too late, I don't know. It's sad. But how do you get that message out? don't know, because we love consumerism. I mean, us in the developed countries. I say that the neoliberal model, which has dominated the world since 1980s, let's say. I mean, Reagan, Thatcher were the political people who ushered that in. Clearly, Milton Friedman was the um, theorist behind that. I mean, the idea is... This is the Rust Belts. I mean, in other words, the first world, or if you want to call that developed world, even middle class and working class people are, well, they haven't, their jobs are gone, going. They're going. And they're going, of course, to countries like Brazil, the BRIC countries, we call them. The BRICs are Brazil, Russia, India, China. They also throw South Africa in. But clearly, India, China, and Brazil, and we can see that it's going to low labour cost areas, this is really worrying, not only low labour costs, but low uh, conditions for workers. What I have an analogy that we talk about in my classes is that in terms of time, the industrial capitalism is turning back to the 19th century because of lowly paid workers and dangerous conditions. And you get that in the BRICS in Brazil, India, China particularly. So it's moving away from the developed industrial world into the BRIC countries where they can go back to the 19th century where the profits are enormous, 
But you can see that here as well. Well, we're the, one of the ones, I mean, our manufacturing is disappearing. People say, well, you've got to be nimble and agile and, you know, find get, other things. But the point is, they can't, they, it won't absorb that level of employment. And get rid of the unions because oh, they're yes. protecting workers. Mm. And they are the main target. I mean, the, the, the sort of package deal you get is deregulation of labour, privatisation of state assets, uh, basically foreign investment. Uh, this is the package. And in this deed, this makes few people very wealthy. But if you haven't got a job, and I think you know, the, the ultimate thing becomes crime. And crime, I, I believe, is an is a, um, index of poverty. If you get to the point where you, you have no other option. I mean, in Brazil, and I think, you know, and these, and it will happen again, I think, at some in India and China, is that you, the wealthy, have to start living behind walls with guards. And every time, I mean, I know a couple of Brazilians who've come to Australia, and part of the, uh, their reasons was the, the, the stress of their kids being kidnapped on the way to school. You know, it becomes this stressful. I mean, so, you know, they're, they're middle class and upper middle class people. See, the problem is, even if you're a winner, you can't sleep at night. So my view is that you wake up and realise that a fairer distribution of this economy is in your own interest, actually, because you don't want to live behind armed guards. There's big issues here, and I think that clearly, I think humanity's, the lessons seem to come is only a result of catastrophe. I mean, does that sound depressing? The way the world is now is depressing. Very depressing. My view is that we really need some major political economic change. Political economy has to change to a fairer. Not saying you know the, uh, you have to take everything off people, but my view is it's in the interests of everyone that we have a society that looks and cares for not only for other humans but other animals and the environment, and we can all at least live to some extent. Uh, I think comfortably. We don't want people living in the streets and dying and uh, not having sewage. I think um, poverty will breed. I mean, in other words, I'll take it from them eventually if they don't, uh, I think, understand that we really have to change. Unfortunately, I think it, it'll come through the climate uh, aspect when we really, uh, you know, use the expression Mother Nature will do the job for us because we've abused her. Dr Ralph Newmark, who's... Um the director of the Institute for Latin American Studies at La Trobe University. Sobering thoughts from what Ralph's been talking about. We all have to do our bit. That's all for me for today. And as I've been saying throughout the program, next week there's no regular program. It's just the day that you ring in, hopefully. I'm sure you will. And donate to... This wonderful radio station to make sure that we get to the 42nd year. So I'll play one more community announcement and then it's time for Dumbo Law. So bye for now.